from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Hi, I'm Jen Kirkman, and welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. Today, my guest is award-winning research psychologist Michael Addis. He wrote the book Invisible Men, Men's Inner Lives, and the Consequences of Silence. Now, it's, it, you know, it's always weird for me uh, to want to talk about something like this, because I have to be honest, you know, I was the week that I was reading this book in preparation for this interview in my other life, in my life as uh, someone who, well, I, I'm, I don't perform stand-up comedy anymore, but 25 years as a stand-up comedian. In my other life, there was a lot going on in my community where, um, you know, a, a sexual offender who was credibly accused and admitted to it won a Grammy for his comedy album. And, you know, he'd been exiled for a little bit, but he came back and 
and anyone speaking out about like, wow, that really makes women feel like they don't matter. And it does kick up a lot of trauma and anxiety. And, and uh, you know, I live a life online and I just I am constantly, whenever I speak out about things or speak up about things or just even talk about sexism and inequality and the nuance of any conversation about a sexual predator winning a Grammy. I'm not saying, I don't even know what I'm, I'm not, the, the argument always gets down to it. Should they never work again? It's like, I don't, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about how I feel, thinking about my feelings about the message it sends to other people in comedy that aren't men. And so I notice this online a lot is like women are talking through their emotions, their feelings. Men are coming back wanting to debate. It's all in their head, you know, and and it's it's exhausting, frankly. But it was just one of those weeks where I am living online. I'm speaking out about something and the harassment I'm getting is just unreal. And it's happened before. It's a regular part of my life being a woman at all, but online as well. And so here I am reading this book about men and their inner lives and how, you know, because of the patriarchy, they they are stuck in these ridiculous roles where they're, you know, not supposed to show emotion because everything is so sexist that it's like if a man, everything has been feminized to where, like, if a man does this, it's, you know, it's not manly. And so he doesn't do it. And, and, it, and it, it was just interesting because I, my empathy was at, a negative two on a scale of one to 10. I was just like, then just fix it already, everybody, because you're making our lives impossible, you know. But it was great to talk to Michael Addis because, I mean, he's obviously aware of the consequences. It's in the title of his book, The Consequences of Silence, when men don't feel like they're, you know, given any room in society to talk about their feelings, express emotion. It builds up and can cause anxiety up to dot, 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 someone is going on a shooting spree, right? Or someone is harming others, or at the very least, is just causing disruptions in relationships, whether romantic or family or friendships, or maybe just you're one of these guys online that just wants to debate a woman when she's talking about the nuance of a feeling. And these are consequences. And what we talked about in this episode was that the scary part can be when it's not like, oh, well, if only men could talk about their feelings, but they're, go back a step. They're not even in their own minds and hearts and souls recognizing a feeling. Like, it's not that Oh, they have all the same skills that 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 women do, and other, you know, all kinds of different people. They're just not able to verbalize. I mean, it's so much more than that. It's like this just complete disservice that this kind of patriarchal society has done to men. And that's you know what I'm always screaming about is that feminism helps men to, you know, break us all out of these stupid binds that that we have because of, as Michael Ennis reminds me in this episode, the big P, the patriarchy. So if anyone listening is like, I don't want to hear about men, it trust me, you'll love this episode. It'll be very healing for your soul. And, and that's how um, he begins his book is like, I know what you're thinking. Really? Like <laughs> men have everything. And now I've got to read a book about it. But it was a really great conversation about 
you know, whose problem this is, what can be done about it, and what women can do to help. And I think you're going to love his answer on that one. I will not give it away. Anyway, so let's just introduce my guest today. Uh, Michael Addis, PhD, has published more than 70 articles and books. Um, he is a recipient of the American Psychological Association's David Shaka Award and the New Researcher Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. He's the author of Invisible Men, Men's Inner Lives and the Consequences of Silence. He is a professor of psychology at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Again, so enjoy my conversation and I'll see you on the other side with this episode's takeaways. All right, everyone, I'm here with Dr. Michael Addis, the author of Invisible Men, Men's Inner Lives and the Consequences of Silence. And it's funny because I was reading your book and I was so glad that the way you started it is Invisible Men. Who are you kidding? The title <laughs> of this book may make you wonder. Invisible men, who are you kidding? Everywhere we look, we see men's lives on television and sports and politics at work. And at home, men are anything but invisible. Um, but at the same time, men's most men's inner lives remain hidden from others and often from themselves. But I'm just glad you put it out there because I do think, especially, you know, being a woman, and I feel like society lately is men seem to be for lack of a better word, going through some stuff. <laughs> and so a lot of times, and we'll talk about this more towards the end of the episode, a lot of times my empathy is really running thin. And it shouldn't because I have anxiety disorders and I want to use this podcast to help others. But I do like that you recognize and are talking about, you know, we're not saying that, you know, men aren't uh, out there, but but they're living two different lives, right? They're living their public facing life. And I don't even mean like a celebrity, but just anyone. Um, and then on the inside, they're suffering from anxiety. And I know someone listening might go, well, duh, that's everyone with anxiety. But can you explain to us what's what's so unique in men about, about that? Well, I think we're, you know, encouraged from almost day one to have this sort of public persona, which lives up to images of what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. And a lot of that is about being powerful, impactful, stoic, um, more powerful than women, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is this is where I think your strained empathy comes from. Is that if you, <laughs> you look around, it's like guys are everywhere saying, "Look at me," but it's only part of me, right? It's the part that is um, that fits those societal ideals. And a lot of times, to achieve that, we have to sort of squash and hold back the part that doesn't have a friggin' clue what's going on, and the part that's afraid or anxious or depressed or or super stressed out because saying i don't know what's going on and i'm struggling is you know essentially not very manly so i think that's where the the, the duality comes from so yeah and you know the way i relate to this is i'll give you an example in my i had panic disorder i guess i still do but i'm not really panicking a lot but where i used to panic all the time was airplanes and sitting on the plane i would compare and despair I'd look around at other people oh well none of them are panicking you know that guy's reading a book that woman's you know, doing a crossword puzzle, what's wrong with me, you know, then shame and then shame makes a panic worse, all that kind of thing. And, but I only had those experiences situationally, right? So I can't imagine walking around thinking like, for, for example, with the men that do know they might have anxiety and we'll talk about 
ones that don't. But thinking, um, well, I can't even let anyone know this, uh, you know, because for me on the plane, it would be I would feel embarrassed or scared to let anyone know. And so I would hold it in, which would make it worse. But thank God those were only situational things for one to six hours at a time. But walking around the world that way, what can that do to a person's, I don't know, personality, temperament, physical? Does it can it hurt their body? I mean, what what does that do over time to a, a guy? That's stressful. You know, I mean, what you're talking about is 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 the consequences of guys hiding our true selves from each other, right? So one, one of those rules from early on about manhood is no matter what's going on inside, project externally like everything's cool. You know, and you see this really coming out in um, the adolescent and teen years. That sort of super unemotional teenage boy is almost like an icon now. Nothing troubles him. And what happens is, you know, you, you, you look at other guys. I remember this very clearly growing up, and it still happens now, is looking at other men and thinking, well, he sure looks like he's got it going on, you know, like mm. nothing bothers him. And so now I've got two issues, right? One is I'm struggling on the inside if I'm, if I'm dealing with panic or anxiety or, or any sort of uh, vulnerable emotion. And then the second problem is it feels like there's something shameful about that because look around me and other guys aren't talking about it. They, and they've got this long practiced kind of cool pose, right? That, that indicates or at least seems to indicate everything's fine. And you know, and I don't mean to position myself as above that either. I'm sure there's a, I've been told this by my students. There's a lot of ways I'm capable of giving off uh, sort of everything's great, you know, nothing mm -hmm. bothers me sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, it's not exactly the emperor's clothes, but it's close. It's close to that. So tell me then about like why you got into this specific kind of work. I know you talk in your book about, uh, a friend of yours who's a PhD who was studying borderline personality disorder in men. And then you were saying that what she said is that um, men with BPD seem brittle, but, but women come across as fragile. And you were saying, you know, the difference is with men being more, more brittle, if it seems like if you reach out and touch them, metaphorically speaking, they just might crack entirely, you know? Mm. Um, and unlike a lot of anxiety people with anxiety disorders, men aren't necessarily worried about going insane. It's sort of like, you know, well, if I'm insane, then I'm, maybe I won't even know it. It's, it's something different. I know that I just asked you three questions, but can you talk about how you got started <laughs> in this? And, and what is that difference between, you know, women might appear fragile who have anxiety, men might appear brittle? So, yeah, I mean, I went to graduate school in, in clinical psychology with the idea that I was going to become a psychotherapist and and help people, you know, through talk therapy. Um, started doing a lot of research on um, counseling approaches. And one of the first things I noticed was that the majority of people coming in for therapy were women. Mm. Second thing I noticed was, wow, I'm the only guy in my graduate class here. And the third thing I noticed was, huh, now that I'm the only guy around, I'm starting to see some of the things that I learned about being male that are affecting how I'm doing in graduate school and how I'm approaching this whole enterprise of, you know, talking about emotions and trying to help people. 
that all kind of coalesced um, when I came to Clark University in the in the mid '90s, and I started getting interested in the question of why men don't attend therapy as often as women. Mm. Um, do a little bit, a little bit of research, and see that not only do we not go to therapy as much, but we don't go to the doctor as much. Mm-hmm. We don't take care of our health as much. We don't disclose problems as much. You know, and the list goes on. Um, it's really sort of a, a curious thing, and so. You know, a lot of this led into an interest in how men get taught to or to not recognize problems in our lives, you know, all the way back to like, are things okay or not? Do I even know myself that things are are going on that are difficult? You know, you mentioned too the the frattle versus versus brigil. The the fragile (laughs) versus brittle. (laughs) There's a new new diagnostic category. Um, (laughs) That distinction actually came from one of my graduate school advisors, Marsha Linehan, who was the, you know, she developed this therapy for borderline personality disorder, dialectical behavior therapy, and she became world famous for helping people, um, particularly people who were um, prone to self-injury. And she was not interested in gender in particular, but early on in my career, I I visited her one time um, and she asked me what I was doing. I told her about, you know, being interested in men's mental health. And she said, you know, the guys that I see, the very few of them with BPD, it's like they're they're like brittle rather than fragile. And I, I asked her what that was about. And she said, well, like the women present as fragile in the sense that I have to be really careful around them. But the guys are like, they're brittle. They're, they seem really well held together. And if, if you poke a little bit, they're fine. But you get this sense that if I poke a little bit too much, they're just going to explode into shatters. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what what an amazing metaphor that is, because I can relate to it personally. And it was true to my experience doing therapy with men, too, that I, I felt quite a bit more um, resistance uh, to the idea that you, you might be suffering, the idea that you might be vulnerable. But it also felt that as, as tough as that resistance was, there was almost in some ways more raw vulnerability underneath it. And in some ways that rawness is a byproduct of having to expend so much energy holding yourself together because of the yeah. fear of what would it mean if I can't hold it together, you know? And we know that what it means is you're normal. You're a human <laughs> right. being, right? <laughs> and I think it's important to, to, for listeners to realize too that when we talk about men as being brittle, it's not that they're actually brittle and going to completely fall apart if they allow themselves to acknowledge what they're feeling. Mm. It's more that, that that's the fear, right? Yeah. And it, it's this sense that I'm just going to explode. It's like I've seen so many men come through our research studies who will deny um, anxiety or depression. And, you know, despite scoring off the charts on these standardized <laughs> kinds of questionnaires, and we'll, and I'll say... So tell me about that. So from your perspective, you're not anxious. Why is that? And they'll say, well, I, I know I'm not anxious because my wife has anxiety and she's a basket case and I'm still <laughs> able to get up and go to work. So if I'm able to get up and go to work, that means I'm doing okay. And I'll say, what about what's happening privately? What about, you know, I get it. You're, you're doing really well and you're gutting it out and that's great. And so I'm not suggesting that you, you know, that you're crazy or that you, or anything like that. But in terms of like what it feels like on the inside, what, what's going on, you know, in that sense. And, you know, then it's like, if you can make that connection, it's like, 
well, I'm just exploding on the inside. Mm. You know, that's it, it's it's overwhelming, but I don't have anxiety. How do you um, what happens, I guess, when a man that you're talking to does realize it's anxiety? Does he does his worst fear come true and he thinks he's weak or, you know, like what what's the reaction? Is there any relief or is it like does it just turn into more problems? That's a great question. I mean, I think I think that all depends upon the context. Mm-hmm. Right. So so ideally it turns into relief because the recognition that, you know, that what I'm experiencing is not uncommon. There's lots of other people and importantly, other men who have experienced this. And, you know, we don't have to look far into, fortunately, these days into professional athletes, politicians, famous, you know, men with lots of I like to say lots of masculinity in the bank. You know, mm-hmm. these guys, too, have struggled. So ideally, there's relief. But as you, I think you pick up on, you know, language can be really powerful. And a a lot of us men grow up with a sort of femophobia, you know, if Mm -hmm. something's been labeled feminine, it is frankly frightening. If it's feminine, it's frankly frightening, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. And so if anxiety, quote unquote, strikes a guy as shameful and weak, then his, his initial reaction to it might be, um, shame, fear, you know, um, self, self-hatred, guilt, and so on. Hopefully they begin to understand, like I'm sure you've talked about many times on your show that anxiety is an evolved mechanism in all human beings. It's there for a reason. Yeah. And an anxiety disorder is really nothing more than a sort of oversensitivity of, of a basic mechanism in the human body and mind. And that's, you know, there's nothing to be sh- ashamed of about that. I know I was thinking, you know, it's, we all know the caveman thing and that gets said a lot on this show. And, you know, it's a back from when we were blah, blah, blah. And we had to sense of danger was coming and humans, you know, um, were able to, you know, out, we didn't, we had to use our brains to realize when danger was coming. So is there a danger? And I don't know if, I don't know what what's going on out there in the in the world of um, helping men who have anxiety, but is there a temptation to and a danger to uh, making anxiety masculine? You know the way they make like now we're going to have shower gel for men and it's going to smell like <laughs> car grease. You know, like yeah. <laughs> is is that something at one point people were doing? Are they still doing it? What do you? How do you feel about that? I can't tell you how glad I am that you brought that up. <laughs> Because I've done a lot of these interviews, and usually I have to bring that up. In oh, other good. words, the, yeah, yeah. The, 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 what you're talking about, from my perspective, is this tendency culturally to man up mental health, right? The idea is if we if we make it macho to talk about mental health or macho to see a psychotherapist, like have the courage to change, or like that old Viagra commercial. The, I remember this going where this famous baseball player was like. I take batting practice. I take pitching practice. I take Viagra. Step up to the plate and call your doctor. It's like, I think I get the motivation to do that. You know, it's marketing to a stereotype of men, but it comes at a cost, you know, because even though it might be changing the idea of what's manly into something more theoretically helpful or adaptive, it's also continuing this idea that men must be manly, right? Now we just need to do the opposite. We need to go from not talking about our feelings to talking about our feelings. I think the bigger problem is the idea that men need to be manly, 
Mm -hmm. right? Let's just let go of that a little bit and be like, let men be human, you know, mm -hmm. and then we'll see the real improvements in, in functioning, I think. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. So I look back, there was this book. Uh, do you know the book Backlash by Susan Faludi? Quite well. Okay, I'm obsessed with it. I haven't read it since the 90s, but it stayed with me. And I almost got this chill when I read it, thinking, oh, God, I I think she's right. I don't think things are going to get better. And I think even though I'm in this, you know, it was the mid-90s, you know, we got Hillary Clinton, first lady, saying, I'm not baking cookies. We got Nirvana's like the number one band, and he's going on Saturday Night Live in dresses and nail polishes. This kind of moment of uh, feminism and men were embracing their humanness and not, you know, there wasn't, but there was, there was both things as I was going on in culture, but I was in a little bubble. So I'm like, oh, everything's great and it's getting better. And I read her book that was like, not blaming the women's movement, but saying now that women are working, 
the men's roles are changing and we're not doing anything to uh, walk the men through it, you know, mm. and they are going to, there's going to be a backlash. And I, I knew she was right. And I'm, I feel like I'm seeing it now. And what's so odd is when I meet um, younger men who still fall into this, like you're talking about things have to be manly or I just keep thinking, when is, I thought just certain generation had to die off and then we're done here, you know? So it's just interesting to me. Like I could understand if your dad was like, look it, I was in, you know, World War II and I didn't sit around talking about my feelings. So shut up. But now we're so many generations from that. Um, why is this still happening? Like, where is this message coming from? Because there's so many examples, the opposite, but it's really doesn't seem to have gotten better. Where's this message coming from? Yeah. <laughs> Patriarchy. But what, right. what, what, I mean, but that's what I mean is like, isn't the yeah. president of patriarchy like dead now? You know what I mean? Like, so he, yeah. president of patriarchy, passed it down to his son. And if we're looking at patriarchy as like a corporation, I get it. But in other words, I, I guess it's like an impossible question where it's like, there are, especially with social media, so many more examples now of being a man, which could just be anything, you know, uh, but it still seems just as bad as when there was only the Marlboro man on TV. You know, it, why am I being negative or is it getting better at no, all? Or why is it no, still happening? I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm being facetious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but I think on some level it's true like that, that this idea that, that it's not even an idea. It's a, it's a absolutely over-rehearsed path of least resistance practice that people are born into in which men are supposed to be dominant in some way over women. Has that changed? Yes, in some ways, right? Like I've got lots of young students in my classes um, who, who grew up with a sort of positive feminist ideology or just the absence of, of a, what is now called toxic masculinity. Mm. Um, and I see lots of young men who are, um, they're not homophobic, they're not misogynist, um, they're for all it, uh, intents and purposes progressive in the way that they're thinking about things. And then there are also the sorts of, um, actions that you see that would fall under Susan Flutie's idea of backlash, mm -hmm. you know, that for, for if women's increased access to power in society, you will see men threatened by this. Um, and I think part of that is that there's still a tremendous amount of economic inequality. There's yeah. still a tremendous amount of white privilege. There's um, a lack of education, and I think a tremendous amount of fear for a lot of men. A lot of what um, some men feel entitled to, yeah, is now threatened. Um, so yeah, you have to be on the on the watch for backlash. Was it Springsteen and One Step Up and Two Steps Back that song? But it. The problem with that is it. that just means you're going to end up going backwards all the time. And that's not right. a useful way to look at things. I, I think we're making progress, but I think I think it's up to us as men to model for each other more adaptive ways of being in society. You know, I don't think this is on women. I don't think I don't think this is on on other people whose identities put them in, in marginalized or oppressed positions. I think it's on us, you know, to well, figure out. I'm thinking because yeah. it's I think, you know, like. I've always tried to say, you know, feminism helps men too. It takes the men out of their boxes, which is causing them so much anxiety. And it, and you still can be, you know, e you're not less than, you're equal to, 
But with men, it's kind of like, I don't know what women are going to do to help. You know what I mean? Like, it does seem weirdly like a men's problem and it's on men to solve. So that to me seems extra hard because who are men going to listen to? In other words, you know, like. Right. Right. Well, we, yeah, we, we were encouraged, you know, to listen to other men. That's part of living in a patriarchal society. I think one of the challenges is it's not always apparent to guys what's, what's to be gained here. You know, so if I let go of traditional notions of masculinity about toughness and emotional stoicism and dominance and so on and being a big wheel and making a lot of money, you know, where does that leave me? And, you know, I can say, uh, as someone who's looked at the research, well, it's going to leave you with better mental and physical health, better quality relationships, a better sex life, mm-hmm. more sense of connection to your children, right? And and a better ability to work with women and people of other genders, right? So there's a lot to be gained there. But I think on some level, you've got you've to experience that to buy into it. And, and you're more likely to experience it if you put yourself in a community of men enacting it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know how, you know, you'd, I guess you'd have to actively seek that out or, you know. Um, you do. Yeah. That's you do. Tough. And you have to take risks, too. You know, it's like you have to. <laughs> I'm just thinking about times I've been out with golf buddies and, and been like, God, you know, how, how's it going? How's it going? How's it going? And I'm thinking, how's it going? It sucks right now. And this is a moment where I have to decide, am I going to say it sucks? And when they, then when they ask me, what do you mean? Or they say, you know, what are you talking about? I have to be honest and say, I don't, I feel awful. You know, I've been down on myself or whatever it may be and not just gripe about the economy or something. Right. And then, you know, you're kind of putting yourself out there, right? It's like, then do they make a homophobic joke or are they going to say, Hey, you know, I'm glad you said that. Like, let's all cut the bullshit here. Like I feel awful too. I, and is this, do you notice, like, is this a a straight man problem or is this, does this go, you know, I I don't, I don't know about it. Is it, has it only been studied with straight men or is it? No, it's right. So there's just stereotype out there that, that, um, that gay men have transcended this, this yeah. sort of restrictive masculinity because they have more access to femininity and emotional expressiveness. And, but the research shows that gay men are as affected by this as, as much as straight men. So gay men struggle with, you know, like, what does it mean to be masculine? And am I masculine enough? They struggle with body image, right? Mm-hmm. It, with um, a sort of hierarchy between more f- uh, quote-unquote feminine gay men and more masculine gay men and so on. So, no, I mean, I think that this sort of stuff affects people of a range of identities. What you see, I think, is that, um, you know, at the risk of, of getting a little over-intellectual about this, but mm-hmm. you see gender intersecting with other identities as well. So what it mm. means to be a white straight man in today's society um, with a well, lot of money I think that's a hugely very yeah, different. Important. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think that's an, a hugely important um, thing to talk about at some point in this discussion is that I'm seeing like the anxiety of the of the white man. Like it's mm-hmm. I've never seen it this bad before, in my opinion, my humble, not a doctor opinion. But do you think there's some crisis going on or is it just that we're seeing it because of social media? Boy, is, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think it's both, you know, if I if I if I had to bet on it. Um, things like COVID and, um, 
just the incredible political polarity going on in this country, there's two major stressors right there that, that, that tear at the social fabric, you know, like, and we're, you know, it's true for everyone, but let's talk about like guys, right. Or, or Mm -hmm. white straight guys talk about people who historically have been in relative positions of power and have had more experience hiding their vulnerability. You've got two things here that are making it harder and harder to connect with other people. And we all need to connect. Mm. You know, loneliness is one of the great understudied issues in men's lives. Mm. You know, um, we did a study at my university where we asked students of all genders to estimate how much men in our environment at the university wanted to have closer friends, how much they felt lonely and wanted to share more of themselves with other men. And all people of all genders and backgrounds estimated men to be less lonely and less in need of close connections than the men themselves actually report. So that's to me mm. fascinating, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's like, yeah, there's all these angry guys out there and <laughs> but a lot of them I suspect are lonely. The problem is they're, they're ashamed of being lonely if they know they're lonely. So, you know, there's a couple Oof, of challenges yeah. there. Yeah. That's really tough because, you know, first of all, now we've been, you know, everyone's like locked in their home in varying degrees for years now at this point. And, you know, the internet can be a great place to connect or the worst place you mm-hmm. know, if you want to find some toxic friends and, and feel a sense of community, you know, it's like, uh, it, but I, I think shame, I wanted to talk about that. I'm always trying to get people to talk about shame on this podcast and be like, but isn't it like such a cause of panic attacks? And you know, your book really dove into that is like shame causes men so much anxiety. So it's like not even just this, like, yeah, you're going to be masking all the time. Like, can you speak to what does shame feel like and present like in men? And what is, why are they, what is the shame? I mean, shame to me feels like I just want to hide, you mm. know, right now. I, there is an impending sense of doom coming from other people and the way they're thinking about me. There's, there's something about me right now that is so unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I just need to go away. And um, I think for a lot of men, shame is such a powerful emotion. First of all, because it's powerful for everyone. It's, it's in our evolution. You know, it's there for a reason. But second of all, because so many of us guys are shame phobic, we, we don't know how to deal with shame itself. We don't know how to say, I feel ashamed. Mm. We don't know how to even own that we're concerned about being rejected when, we're, when we are feeling ashamed or that we're rejecting ourselves. I mean, it's just so many layers of vulnerability. It's, 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 it's a bit too much to swallow, frankly, for a lot of guys. So, well, you know, how I do think, you like handle that on your own? Like, you know, it seems like you I'm really got to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to yeah. go to therapy to work that out. And and there's not a lot of like quick fix things that you see going around about shame phobia, the deep level, not knowing how to verbalize shame. I mean, I never thought about that really until you just said it. Mm. One thing I think about, so I don't think there's an easy answer to it, yeah. but there's one thing that 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 resonates with me. And I can't remember where I first heard this. It was somewhere back in graduate school, but it's the idea that shame grows in the closet. Mm. And so um, 
I make my own shame worse by hiding that which I'm ashamed of mm. from others. Now, I, you know, I'm not going to confess everything I'm ashamed of. <laughs> you know, you got to do it in small doses. But, mm -hmm. but for example, if I'm like, I've, I've struggled with depression and anxiety for, for most of my life, you know, on and off. And it occurred to me uh, probably 15 years ago that, you know, here I am being positioned and positioning myself as an expert on men and depression. And I haven't told anyone that I know what it's like to be depressed and that some days I wake up just really loathing myself and feeling mm. like all of my accomplishments are, are fake and, and my life is fake. Well, so what, you know, what good is that doing me to keep hiding that? It's, it's what it does is it reinforces the idea that this is shameful. Yeah. Right? So I now talk about my experiences with depression. I'm guessing that's a big part of why you're doing this whole series, right? Is you found that, that talking about anxiety not only benefits other people, but it also mm -hmm. helps you. Absolutely. And, you know, I was mistaken that younger people have it easier because they have the internet. So if they're anxious, they'll type anxious into Google, they'll figure it out. I didn't have the internet growing up, you know, and then I realized I was totally wrong. And I was like, oh, well, I'd like to talk about it and, and help people give them breadcrumbs so they know where to begin their research. And, you know, like what you're saying. So, okay, so you're here, you've got depression and you're teaching it. You don't even want to tell people you have it. So I'm assuming once you did, you were positively rewarded, right? You got really good feedback. People thought you were, oh my God, thank you so much for sharing. And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you got like a Pavlovian response of some kind that made you keep doing it, right? <laughs> uh, no? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say overall, yes. Yeah. Yes. Overall, it's absolutely been worth it. The reason I'm pausing is that that uh, it's absolutely been some backlash and some wow. policing of my masculinity too. Um, wow. Yeah, and the thing the thing you know how I feel about that is um, fuck you. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I've it's interesting. You know, I teach a psychology of men and masculinity class every year, sometimes a couple times, and I've been doing it for almost twenty years now. And there's this moment. Every time I teach this class towards the end of the semester where the students sort of, without planning it, they kind of come together on a point of saying, I get it now. I get how this works, but what are we going to do about it? Like, how am I supposed to talk about all this with my family who raised me to think this way? How am I supposed to talk about homophobia? How am I supposed to talk about the importance of, of, of supporting women and, you know, and, and being pro-feminist or whatever it may be? And especially from the guys, it's, I get this, I want to change, but my friends, mm. right, they're going to ridicule me. And I always say, I don't have a really good answer to this. You know, the yeah. truth is, if you're committed to a certain way of being, you also have to think through who you're hanging around, you know, so... Mm. I, I mean, I, I, my friends, my guy friends, you know, sometimes they'll give me grief about stuff. But what I've found is over time, if I hang in there, I, it is positively rewarded. And I, yeah. and I start seeing it come out in them, too. They start being more honest about what's going on. They call me up one-on-one -on -one and say, don't say anything to the other guys, but could you help <laughs> me talk through this issue with my wife? That always cracks me up. That is so funny. Well, you know, <laughs> it... Um, you know, there's avoidance, right? People do that when they're anxious. So I'm not going to drive over this bridge because it makes me scared. And eventually they can't go anywhere. But it, it seems like, yeah, if you, of 
the the only answer to avoidance is like you're gonna feel anxious and you're gonna panic. You gotta do it. It's like there's got to be an exposure therapy, right, for for men to take that first step and be their authentic selves. And you know, fuck you, like you said, if their friend, friends can't handle it, they either get new friends or maybe they'll help, you know, open their friends up. Well, it's interesting you talk about exposure and um and and things like that. And I, I sometimes say uh, and resist saying it because I anticipate lots of hate mail, but I think masculinity can be really usefully understood as an anxiety disorder. I think it acts exactly like an anxiety disorder. Oh, that's it's brilliant. A, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a coordinated way of responding to a perceived threat, which is exactly what an anxiety disorder is. It's also exactly mm. like an allergy, right? Mm. An, an allergy is is like an anxiety disorder too, right? It's not it doesn't have all the same cognitive and emotional components, but it's still your body's way of saying threat get it out of here, got to coordinate some sort of defense. Right, let's masculinity produce like that. Yes, right, exactly. And anxiety says, let's figure out, you know, how I'm going to not have a heart attack. Let's run and hide. Masculinity says, let's pump ourselves up. Let's put women down. Let's shut our emotional lives down, you know, posture for other guys. It's very similar in terms of how it functions. That's so genius too, because like, and that like the other things that we do when we're anxious that don't work, it makes anxiety worse, right? It certainly can. Yeah. Because why am I putting all this energy into, into doing this? You know, it's like, I, yeah, flooded with stories. <laughs> we'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you have talked about the three P's of silence with men. Personal silence, public silence, and uh, wait, where's what was the third? Personal, private, and public? Yep. Okay. So in personal silence, you talk about when the man himself doesn't even know he's in pain. And some men are raised in such a way that they get a mild version of a psychological condition called alexithymia. Is that how you yes. say it? Yeah. And as you say, it translates to without words for mood. And so you talked about in your book, like an example of a conversation that you had with someone that you couldn't even get them to say words about how they felt because they, they didn't know. And so can you tell us more about alexithymia? I mean, alexithymia. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a very common um, disorder. And, you know, the. um uh, psychologist and researcher Ron Levant has suggested that that men in general suffer from a subclinical version of this. In other words, that the that the normal way we raise men in this society tends to produce a mild case of not knowing what it is that you're feeling. Mm. So when you know, one of the consequences of this is that when people will say uh, to men sometimes you know, whether this is an intimate partner or a physician or a friend, how are you doing? What, what are you feeling? What does that feel like when such and such happens? The answer is often, uh, I don't know, or it sucks, right? Um, and it's not necessarily because a guy is withholding, although it, it, it could be. It could also be because he simply doesn't know. Um, sometimes it's just a bit of a bodily feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my, my, I have a tension in my chest or it's an externalization kind of thing. Like, it just feels like I hate my boss, you know, mm, <laughs> and, yeah. um, it, it, it's, it's definitely a challenge because, you know, if you can't name something, how, how do you do anything about it really? Mm -hmm. 
this big challenge. Let's say someone has great parents, you know, um, whatever, every, uh, the perfect scenario to not raise someone in a sea of toxic masculinity. Mom and dad share chores. They both work. Everything's great. Can you still maybe develop something like that because of like societal influences? Like how much, uh, how much control do parents even mm-hmm. have over this? Yeah, you know, there, there's not a, a clear answer to that, but I, I, I think it's important to avoid the idea that parents are sort of master chefs of their kids' psychological development, you know? Okay, um, yeah. For one thing, we know that, that kids are exquisitely sensitive to peer influences. Yeah. You know, as, as we develop, we're not really designed to figure out how to deal with our parents. That's true for the first few years of life, but we're designed to figure out how to deal with the world we're going to grow into. And mm-hmm. so peers tend to, to, to win out over parents. Um, that said, our, you know, parental influences also shape who we look for in peers. Um, you know, just as this is an end of one anecdotally, but for example, my father, uh, my father had his PhD in psychology. He was a very emotionally expressive guy. And, you know, when I would struggle with bullies and such, you know, he would ask me uh, crazy questions like, um, well, what do you think that guy's feeling as he's about to beat the crap out of you? <laughs> you know, like, right. So I, got, I got really good at, at analyzing other people's insecurities and, and uh I have a reasonable level of emotional intelligence. So in that sense, uh, I was shaped uh, in a way that I was able to avoid some of the uh, issues about, you know, what it means to be a man, so to speak. And in other ways, you know, um, I grew up uh, thinking, you know, uh, it's my world. Um, talk mm. over women. Um, you avoid things that are feminine. I remember, you know, my mom, I was, time, I was in high school and we were out shopping at the mall and she asked me to hold her purse for a minute. I remember thinking, I can't hold that thing. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm gonna, if I hold that, everyone's going to see and, you know, that sort of stuff. So it's, uh, you know, it's a complex world out there in terms of trying to figure out gender norms yeah. for sure. Well, that makes sense. I, I interviewed a, um, a therapist. We talked mainly about love attachment styles. And and we talked about uh, people who, you know, they've got all their different attachment styles. And she was saying, you know, honestly, like society can influence that as much as your parents. Like if people are seeing too many romantic comedies or things that they think are love that really in real life would be more like uh, akin to obsession or chasing someone that doesn't love you. And I was blown away by that. I actually really didn't realize how much um, media and society and just the world oh. influences us. I really am I'm kind of blind to that, weirdly. I, I think that that's really good news, right? So we were talking earlier about about sort of what, you know, what can, what can we do about this, this it, yeah. these issues of men's ideologies and beliefs about, about our own mental health and how we're supposed to be as men. And one of the things I always encourage people to do is read more broadly, watch, watch different films, you know, mm. that there, there are other ways of being in the world. And I was just listening on NPR the other day and they were interviewing, uh, a guy who had started reading romance novels mm. at his, at his wife's suggestion, because she thought it would make him a better lover. And, mm-hmm. and it was so fascinating to me because my first thought was, how brave of this guy to go on radio and talk about following his wife's advice to be a better lover and not be talking about, you know, well, this is how to, you know, stay hard longer. And this is how to, you know, like make her scream. What he was finding from these novels was how much 
communication mattered, how much humor mattered, how much just being real and open and connected. And he was, you know, having a better sex life because of this. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for learning out there from the environment. You kind of don't want to hear it from your wife or, or your mother or your girlfriend, like what you need to do, but lead someone <laughs> to water. They might learn, yeah. you know. Yeah, I know. I know. I have this, these fantasies about stuff like that, too, that if, if you could lead to the water that 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 men would realize, too, that, for example, in this case, like that kind of stuff about, you know, different ways of, of being a lover is not just about learning how, quote unquote, to satisfy her, but to also enjoy this more yourself. Right. Yeah. And just to become more human in a in a broader sense in this intimate context. It's just it's a tragedy. And I think that's one of the things, you know, that this area of you know, we're getting a little bit far afield from anxiety. But, uh, you know, I have a doctoral student working with me now who's looking at scripts about not prescriptions, but like ideas that mm -hmm. as that young boys get about sex and sexuality from pornography at mm -hmm. a very early age that not only have harmful effects on their sexual partners, but on themselves and their oh, own yeah. level of satisfaction and enjoyment. And to bring it back to anxiety on the amount of anxiety that they experience in those encounters, because they're so afraid of failure. So before adolescence, and this is in the, in the public silence that you talk about that, that men can experience that young boys are very free, um, when they're younger, they're, they express tender, loving feelings with friends and family. They've got an emotional vocabulary. But then adolescence, there comes the public silencing. So that kind of fits in with what we're talking about is that like eventually you go out into the world and you kind of adapt to the world and you start doing that anxiety response, which is like shoving it all in, don't show emotion. And is that, would you say that the answer to why that happens is because like once you're an adolescent, you have more freedom and you are seeing things that are outside of your parents' influence? Yeah, I think so. And I, th I think also that, um, you know, that we've known for a long time that one of the key agendas of adolescence is identity formation. You know, mm. who, who am I? Where do I fit? And you, you see this coming up in terms of what kind of music do you like? Are you an athlete or not? What kind of clothes do you wear? Sexual orientation, which clique you hang out with. And so to figure this out, this who am I, teens get exquisitely sensitive to feedback from other teens. You know, I raised a teenage daughter and I watched as this incredibly bright, wonderful child just got torn apart by other people's reactions to her. And especially now with social media, you know, in oh. a very concrete sense, are you liked or not? How many times a day are you liked? Mm -hmm. And so with, with young boys, I think, raised to think about being masculine, now they're in adolescence. Now they're trying to figure out which group do I fit in. They're raw and open and what we call the policing of masculinity starts to take over. And this this is where other people, boys and girls, frankly, start to shape behavior very directly with things like homophobic insults and accusing boys of being gay or being a girl or a wuss and so on. And so, yeah, that's where you tend to see this this move from being really emotionally open and and 
and out there to being really shut down. And of course, it's different for, for different boys, mm-hmm. but this is the dominant trend we see. So in one of your case studies, you were talking about this man who had panic attacks and he kept saying, well, yeah, you know, I feel he wouldn't list the physical sensations, but that's just stress. This is physical. And you were pushing him to more that it was, uh, you know, do you have any shameful thoughts? You know, what, what are your thoughts? What's your inner life? And he was like, no, 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 this is physical. And I mean, everyone who has panic struggles with this. You know, people go to the ER, they think it's a heart attack. But in terms of uh, helping men understand when they're feeling a physical sensation of a panic attack, what is the emotional life behind that? Like, I know we're not saying their thought in the moment literally causes it, but is it is it that a lifetime of shame and shoving things down can then just come out in panic attacks? I think the important thing for a lot of men to understand about anxiety, including panic attacks, is that the physical symptoms don't make it more real and the psychological or emotional symptoms make it quote unquote in your head. This is the dilemma that I see a lot of guys falling into is that they they assume that if their heart is racing and if they're sweating, right, um, that this can't be an anxiety disorder because it's a physical symptom mm-hmm. and anxiety disorder is a mental disorder and that means it's in your head. So in other words, I'm not making this up is what they're trying yeah. to communicate. And what I try to help them understand, and and I think a lot of contemporary treatment is oriented towards this, is to understand that anxiety is uh, biopsychosocial, right? Like it has biological components, heart racing, sweating, right? That sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. It also has thoughts and feelings, right? Which, if you look at the research, have biological components themselves. So there's nothing... There's nothing more or less real about thoughts, feelings, or sweat, right? It's all Mm. part of the anxiety response. And the fact that you're feeling it and it's really stressful is makes it real enough that, you know, you deserve treatment and you deserve compassion. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned in your book, GERD, which I... Which is another name for um, heartburn, but that's not what you mean. You called it grandiose emotional restriction disorder. What is that? Well, you know what? It's not really a real thing. Um, okay. But I, well, I, I like you made that up and I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for noticing that. So what I was trying to do at that point in the book was to illustrate that as a society, historically in America, we have tended to call things that are more commonly seen as women mental disorders. And we've tended to accept more problems in men as quote unquote normal. So we, so for example, we see Mm. extreme emotionality as something called histrionic personality disorder. And we're worried historically, it's not so much true anymore, but certainly like, you know, women were criticized for not being able to contain their emotions and not being able to be rational enough. And what I was pointing out with this hypothetical grandiose emotional restrictive disorder or GERD was that, well, you know what, Um, being so emotionally restricted and thinking that you've got it all together and that you're wonderful because of that is equally problematic. We just Mm. haven't labeled it and put it in the diagnostic and statistical manual. So that's where GERD came from. I like that because, yeah, I'm I'm referencing your book here, and I I thought that was such a really good point that... um, Because we are more prepared to see stereotypically feminine behaviors as problems, we are more prepared to see women as suffering from psychological disorders than men. But if we assumed 
that the ability to cry, refusal to worry about anything in an excessively high opinion of oneself were markers of an underlying disorder, perhaps GERD, we might see higher rates of mental illness in men. So like you're saying, it's weird because in a lot of medical society, we um, base things on men's symptoms and like, you know, women's bodies are different and their diagnoses are often wrong because everything's based on men. And then this way, weirdly, are you saying mental health is kind of based on women and everything outside of that is seen as quote normal well yeah in a way that's exactly what i'm saying is that that mental health has been feminized historically mm. and, and what i mean by that is that we've tended to assume that mental health problems are more in the realm of women mm. um that um uh, going to therapy is for women. I've heard plenty of men in our research studies say that. Mm. You know, it's part of a broader tendency, I think, to to see things that are less desirable in society and associate them with women. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we're we're back to our friend Mr. P, the patriarchy. <laughs> well, so lastly, to anyone listening who's. Uh, feeling really seen by this conversation. Do you have an opinion? Should men see a male therapist? Does that help with the modeling um, or does it really matter? You know, I don't, I don't, the research suggests um, it's complicated. So there's no sort of dominant pattern here. So it's, I, I certainly wouldn't say that men should see a male therapist. I think if a guy is concerned that there's something not masculine about what he's going through. A male therapist could be helpful mm. in confirming that, no, you you know, it's okay. Like, uh, it, you know, there's in a sense more power to normalize that from a male therapist. For some men, that's too threatening to talk to a male therapist. Yeah. Uh, so a female therapist would be more helpful. On the other hand, um, you know, some guys tend to, uh, you know, you probably want to edit this out. This is... I, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, dy- the dynamics of this get complicated, right? Because a lot of right, a lot of guys will the woman, you mean? yes, or they yeah. just se- just sexualize the relationship, yeah. or turn it into a um, you're my mother, and you're supposed you're not supposed to challenge me, you're supposed to nurture me. Yeah, um, and so you know it's you know the bottom line is find a therapist who's well trained and who you feel comfortable with. And who's familiar with the most contemporary, most evidence-based treatments for the sorts of things that you're struggling with. It was something in your book, you said that, you know, the guy that was having trouble understanding that his panic was also emotional. He finally was like, all right, all right, but I'm going to tell my girlfriend and she's going to be like, I told you so. Is that I told you so helpful? Should how, how can people better support the men in their life that are just starting to... Get help. I mean, I imagine that the I told you so is really not a great reaction. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think any of us like to be told I told you so. I mean, it's understandable. It, yeah. There's a reason we say I told you so to people. But yeah, I mean, I think it's I, I think that there are lots of ways that 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 women can help men. I, I mean, I always give this caveat that the, the most important way for women to help men is for women to take care of themselves first and foremost. I mean, there's a, there's enough messages out there that women get raised with about their role as being responsible for men's emotional well-being, mm-hmm. right? And there and lots of guys get into this pattern where we keep all of our vulnerability hidden except for a woman that we share it with. 
And that's a tremendous responsibility for that one woman. So uh, women need to take care of themselves. Fortunately, one of the ways that you can take care of yourself is is by um, allowing him to take care of himself, right? So I encourage communication along the lines of, I'm here for you. I care about you. Um, I'm not going to force you to do one thing or another, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're taking care of yourself and let me know how I can support you. Yeah. Right. Cause that's a great, like kind of codependency boundary stuff where you don't want to, exactly. you don't want someone getting better. Like, cause you told them to, cause they'll, that'll bite you in the ass eventually. Exactly. One of the things I, I, I like to suggest that helps reconcile this kind of paradox about the patriarchy. Like how do we understand the fact that men are, in power structurally in a patriarchy, but appear to be suffering so much at the same time. And I like to think about the idea that patriarchy tends to oppress women and psychologically and socially restrict men. So, so being restricted is not the same thing as being oppressed, right? Mm. Like we can, men can for ourselves and for each other, reduce this restriction, right? We can metaphorically untie the tight knot around the neck, right? Take the tie yeah. off, be a little more open. So, and, and it's funny because you talked about the three Ps in the book. Since I published that book, I've got another three Ps. I don't know what it is about that, about that letter, um, mm-hmm. but it's pain, power, and privilege mm. go hand in hand as well. You know, So if we're going to talk about men's pain, we have to talk about men's power and privilege. And if we're going to deconstruct men's power and privilege, we got to talk about the pain part. Well, thank you so much. I know this is like, we did not solve the issue, but um, I think we gave the men in my audience a good place to start and the women listening, you know, a little assignment. And uh, I, I thank you so much. I'm, I'm so glad you're teaching that class. I'm you know, hopefully this will get better in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's It's been fun. I hope you got a lot out of my conversation with Dr. Michael Addis, whether you are a man, identify as a man, or know a man. I think, I think this, for me, was a very healing episode. So let's get to... Our takeaways, what can we sum up? What are the key points that we learned today? One is that from early on, boys and men are taught that manhood is about no matter what's going on inside of you, projecting externally like everything is cool. But now that causes another issue. So a man is struggling on the inside, dealing with panic or anxiety or any vulnerable emotion, but Now the problem is it feels like there's something shameful about that because look around and the other guys are also doing the posturing of projecting externally like everything's cool. Dr. Addis got involved in even looking at the mental health of men specifically because he noticed that in his practice, the majority of people coming in for therapy were women. The second thing he noticed was huh, I'm the only guy in my graduate class here. And the third thing he noticed was now that he realized he's the only guy, he's starting to see some of the things that he learned about being male are affecting how he's doing in graduate school and how he's even approaching this whole enterprise of talking about emotions and trying to help people. Statistically, men don't attend therapy as much or as often as women. Men don't go to the doctor as much, and they don't take care of their health as much. They don't 
disclose as much, and the list goes on. Men are not taught to recognize problems in their lives all the way back to the simple question of, are things okay or not? Does a man even know himself enough to say that things going on with him are difficult? Michael Addis has seen so many men come through um, in his research studies who will deny anxiety or depression despite having taken a written test and scoring off the charts of these standardized tests and questionnaires. A lot of men will say, well, no, I'm not anxious. My wife has anxiety. But if I'm able to get up and go to work, that means I'm doing okay. Dr. Addis has seen that when working with men, when explaining to them that actually what they do have is anxiety, it's not just stress or a physical symptom, that ideally the information is a relief to them because there is a recognition that what they're experiencing is not uncommon. But there is a complication when diagnosing some men because a lot of men grow up with what's known as a kind of femophobia. If something's been labeled feminine, like mental health or having anxiety, it's frightening to men. And, you know, anything that's feminine is frightening. If a man, uh, you know, thinks that anxiety is shameful and weak, then his initial reaction to being diagnosed with having anxiety might be shame, fear, self-hatred, and guilt. What men and everyone needs to know is Once again, reminding everyone that anxiety is an evolved mechanism in all human beings. It's there for a reason. Anxiety disorder is nothing more than oversensitivity of a basic mechanism in the human body and mind, and there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. We're experiencing a cultural tendency to man up mental health or or all things that we're marketing towards men. The idea is we make it macho to talk about mental health or macho to see a psychotherapist. Like, like everything's some kind of Viagra commercial. The motivation is marketing to a stereotype of men, but that comes at a cost because even though it might be changing the idea of what's manly into something more theoretically helpful or adaptive, it's continuing the idea that men must be manly. What needs to happen is we need to do the opposite. We need to go from not talking about our feelings to talking about our feelings and letting go of what's manly and what's not and let men be okay with being human. And then there will be real improvements. Dr. Addis believes there's still a tremendous amount of white privilege and lack of education out there. And so there's a tremendous amount of fear for some men who feel that what they're entitled to is now being threatened. Michael Addis believes that none of this societal progress is on women to solve for men. He doesn't believe that any of these issues with masculinity are on other people whose identity has put them in a marginalized or an oppressed position to figure out. He believes it's on men to figure out. There's a stereotype that gay men have transcended this restrictive masculinity because they have more access to femininity and emotional expressiveness, but the research shows that gay men are as affected by this as much as straight men. So gay men struggle with, what does it mean to be masculine? Am I masculine enough? They struggle with body image, with hierarchy between more feminine gay men and more masculine gay men, and so on. What does shame 
actually feel like when someone's experiencing it. Shame feels like I just want to go away and hide right now. There's an impending sense of doom coming from other people and the way they're thinking about me. There's something about me right now that is so unacceptable. I just need to go away. A lot of men are shame phobic. They don't know how to deal with shame itself. They don't know how to say, I feel ashamed. It's a lot of layers of vulnerability and can be too much to swallow. Michael Addis believes the best way to combat that kind of shame phobia is to remember that shame grows in the closet. So you make your own shame worse by hiding it. So now think about trying to confess everything that you're ashamed of and you can do it in small doses. A lot of people will say to Dr. Addis, I get how all of this works, but how am I supposed to talk with my family who raised me to believe in masculinity this way? How do I talk about homophobia? How am I supposed to talk about the importance of supporting women and being pro-feminist? Unfortunately, Dr. Addis says there's no clear answer to this, but the truth is to ask yourself if you're committed to a certain way of being you also have to think through who you're hanging around. For example, with, with Dr. Addis, his guy friends sometimes will give him grief about talking about his feelings, but what he's found is over time, if he hangs in there, it is positively rewarded, and he starts seeing them talk as well about their feelings too. Dr. Addis believes that masculinity can be really usefully understood as an anxiety disorder because he sees it acting just like an anxiety disorder. It's a coordinated way of responding to a perceived threat, which is exactly what an anxiety disorder is. It's, it's also exactly like an allergy. An allergy is like an anxiety disorder too. It doesn't have all the same cognitive and emotional components, but it's still your body's way of saying, hey, there's a threat, get it out of here. There is a psychological condition called alexithymia, and it's a very common disorder. It's suggested that men suffer from a subclinical version of this. In other words, the normal way we raise men in society tends to produce a mild case of, of this, which is not knowing what you're feeling. So the consequence is that people say to men sometimes, whether it's a friend or an intimate partner or a physician, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And the answer often is, I don't know. The notion that parents are the master chefs of their kids' psychological development is not really true. Kids are exquisitely sensitive to peer influences, and as we develop, we're not really designed to figure out how to deal with our parents. That's only really true for the first few years of life, but we're designed to figure out how to deal with the world that we're going to grow into, and so peers tend to win out as more important than parents. What Dr. Addis prescribes for, you know, helping men kind of break out of this is, you know, when talking about the issues of men's ideologies and beliefs about their own mental health and how they're supposed to be as men, he always encourages men to read more broadly, watch different films and, and look at other ways of being in the world. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're listening to this, maybe you want to get more into a female comedian and, <laughs> and you want to buy my new comedy album called OK Gen X, which is available uh, on iTunes and Amazon. I'm just I'm just throwing that plug in there for my, you know, if you're a guy who's like, I don't really normally listen to women comics and you're listening to this episode, there you go. 
It's a doctor's orders. Um, and then lastly, Dr. Addis says, you know, mental health has been feminized historically and going back to, you know, femphobia, uh, we tend to assume that mental health problems are more in the realm of women and that going to therapy is for women. And so again, this doesn't lead men to want to admit to having mental health problems. But Dr. Addis believes that there are the three Ps that go hand in hand with, you know, kind of oppressing men in their own mental health, which is men's power, privilege, and pain. And if we're going to deconstruct men's power and privilege, we've got to be comfortable talking about men's pain. And lastly, if you're a woman, identify as a woman, what can you do about the men in your life? But Dr. Addis says there's enough messages out there that women get, you know, that they're raised with about their role as being responsible for men's emotional well-being. And a lot of guys get into a pattern where they keep all their vulnerability hidden except for a woman that they share it with. And that's a tremendous responsibility for one woman. So women, the best way to take care of men to take care of yourselves. All right, everybody. I hope you will send me an email, anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. We will do a couple more listener email episodes before the season closes out this August. We still have some great guests coming up. We'll be talking about things like ADHD in women, um, anxiety, bullying, menopause, all kinds of great stuff. So subscribe give this show a five-star review on iTunes. That's, do it on iTunes. Who knows what iTunes is? And then uh, a Spotify now is allowing reviewing. So please do give a five-star to the podcast. It helps more people find this. And let's, you know, the more people that find the podcast, the more people might start to feel better. So do all of that for me and we'll meet you back here next week. And just remember, yes, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 